your Bibles this morning, please turn to the book of Philippians. Some of you are probably already there. Um, we are in the third chapter, and today um, we are going to be closing out the third chapter of Philippians. Uh, next week, we're going to be diving into chapter four, which will be the final chapter. And so our, our passage today is going to be verses 17 through 21. I'll just give you a, a few moments to, to get there last week, just as a way of catching you up. Uh, we looked at a, a very well-known piece of scripture. In fact, much of what Paul wrote uh, in, in many of his letters, but specifically in Philippians, are, are, are well known, and not just in the Christendom, but in beyond. Uh, people like to put verses in, in, in different places. But last week, we, we looked at this term, uh, this idea of pressing on, right? And we understood what it meant because it had to do with running a race. And so Paul knew that he, he was running a race, and even though he didn't have it all together, and he never will, by the way, until he sees Christ face to face, even though he doesn't have it all together, he is, he is pushing on. There were three things that we saw last week that he was doing, and it challenged us as well as to what we're doing in our race in life. The first was he parted ways with the past. He, he didn't put any value on them anymore. And then he was looking ahead, he was pursuing the promises Ahead, all the while by being persistent in the present. And so this week, this morning, as we get into our text, we are going to see on our journey in life, on our race in life, there are things, and probably more specifically people, that we should be attracted to. There are also things and people to be avoided in our journey. And also there is a finish line to be anticipated. And so let's get into our text this morning. We'll read it together. Chapter 3, verses 17 through 21 in Philippians. Paul continues. And he says this. Brethren, join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you. And now tell you even weeping. That they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he is, has, even to subject all things to himself. Will you bow with me as we pray before we get into the word? Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word, the power of your word. These don't, the Bible doesn't just contain some of your words. These are your words as you speak to us. Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. We want you to be high and lifted up. We want to exalt your name. And Lord, we just we want to follow you. We want to follow your direction. And we understand, Father, it's found in your word. And so we pray your blessing upon our time this morning in your wonderful word. And we ask in your son's name. Amen. So Paul, as he's talking to the Philippians, he starts out in our section and he tells them, look, I need you to follow my example. 
Follow me. And now before we jump on Paul, as if he were some sort of egomaniac, we need to understand the history of who Paul is. And we know this, that there's a certain amount of history that needs to be known, it needs to be digested. And what we know of Paul, we're not going to go through it all. But he, of course, was a persecutor of church, of the church before Christ. And then Christ, he opened up his eyes to the truth. And so from that point on, Paul gave his life to the Lord. And he dedicated the remaining part of his life, or any part of his race, his lifelong journey, he dedicated it to God's glory. Now, that, that's his testimony. And, and, and by the way, that is the testimony of every person in here that is a follower of Christ, that has given their life to Christ, because he was lost in sin. It was Christ who opened his eyes, and then he ends up dedicating his life to serving him. And by the way, we know this because we've been in this section for a while now. Paul does not shy away from his past. He shares it as it's, it's part of his testimony. And we've seen that in the text prior too. And by the way, he's also very clear. He's not shy about his current state in which he's in. Paul wrote a majority, not a majority, but a lot of the New Testament. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. And nowhere in any of these books do you see or read Paul bragging about himself. He doesn't toot his own horn. He doesn't to, to, to try to make himself look any better than he already is. He, he's very clear, actually, with his struggles. Remember what we talked about last week in Romans. He does the things he doesn't want to do, and he doesn't do the things that he wants to do. In, 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 in a lot of ways, Paul was kind of a train wreck at times, wasn't he? He was conflicted, and yet Paul was redeemed. He's a sinner, and yet he's set free. And yet, even as a child of God, Paul often gets on that struggle bus that you and I are often on in our own lives, right? We can relate to that. There are times in our lives as believers when we think things are going pretty well, right? The, the things are going well. Uh, they look to be turning out pretty good for myself. I'm, I'm making these, these wise decisions. And, and the sin that so easily entangles us doesn't seem to be tripping me up at all. And then there are other times that we know all too well. There are the times we're in the valleys. There are times we're in the peaks, but there's many times we're in the valleys. Very low times in our lives. And unfortunately, there are times that we're not in those valleys because of the people around us, because of the world around us. Unfortunately, many times, it's because of our own making, our own selfish and boneheaded decisions. And you're not alone. We're, we're, we're all there from time to time. And Paul... He's trying, to, he's trying to make sure that they understand, look, I, I'm not the man. I don't have it all together. However, here's what he does realize about himself. He does realize the work that has been done in his life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ has got a hold of him. And he's been teaching him. He also understands and realizes the work that he's put in in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. And so he, no doubt, is further along maturity-wise than the people that he's writing to. That's just, that's just clear. And so he then tells them, look, follow my example. As flawed as my example can be at times, they knew Paul. This church, they knew him. Paul had started this church. They knew him, they trusted him, he knew them, he, he trusted them, and now he's, he's being a mentor to them. He says, follow me, which is actually just consistent with the way that Paul writes. 1 Corinthians 4, 16, 
He says, therefore, I exert, exhort you, be imitators of me. And then he tells in the very same book in chapter 11, verse 1, he says it again, be imitators of me. But then he gives something very important. He says, be imitators of me, of me just also as I am of Christ. See, that example that Paul sets should only be followed if he is following the example of Jesus Christ. And we know what that example looked like. We've read it many times in the gospel. I hope you never grow old of hearing about who Jesus was and who he is. It should be something that we're familiar with, constantly reminding ourselves with, studying it, getting familiar with. We know why Jesus came. Luke 19.10, he says, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And that now is the heart of the apostle Paul. That's what he wants to do. Once the scales came off of his eyes and he recognized the futility of his life before Christ, he now is living for God. Before he was living only for himself. He sought only his own desires and his own passions. He wasn't worried about other people. He just wanted to make sure that they followed rules, that they followed the law, that they followed traditions. People were a distant second to himself. However, when Jesus got a hold of him, he clearly saw now. He saw the priorities in which he was supposed to live by. He understood the needs of the people around him. And he understood this, that people need the gospel. That people need the good news that Jesus died for them, that he defeated sin and death by raising from the grave. And so now the life that he lived, that race that he's now running, it was race. He was racing for God's glory. And he's willing to do anything for it. Whatever it took to make sure the gospel was spread, he was willing to, true, to, to do. And by the way, that's true of many of the early church fathers. Listen to one author. He says, many noble servants of God have suffered much to reach those goals. Many even paid with their lives. But all had one thing in common. Their own comfort was less important to them than being like the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. They were an example for us to follow. And that's what Paul was being for the Philippian church. That's what he wants to be an example. He says, look, follow my example. Now, you've probably heard someone say at some point, do as I say and not as I do. And sometimes they get it mixed up, do as I do and not as I say. Look, it, it, it should be both. It, should, it should, should match up. All of life should match up. The words should match with the actions. The actions should match with the words. Paul is showing them that he, he, he wants them to follow everything that he's, he's, he's setting out in front of them. His words, his actions. As he also follows the words and the actions of Jesus Christ. See, the literal translation of this would be, be fellow imitators with me. That's what Paul was doing. He was imitating Christ. So join me in my journey as I'm trying to be like Christ. And Paul doesn't just stop there with himself as the example. He expounds on it. Look at verse 17. So he says, follow my example, brother, and join and follow my example. And then observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have with us. The New American Standard says, observe NIV, says keep your eye on any of you ever played baseball or softball here? Raise your hand if you played baseball or softball. Okay, some of you. What's one of the first lessons they teach you in baseball and softball? Keep your eye on the ball. Why? 
What's that? Because you could potentially get hit. And look, it's not just the people on, on, the, on, on the diamond, right? On, on the field of play. It's also the parents in the stands. If you've ever been to a baseball game, you want to make sure you're watching. Now they put up a lot of protective nets now. It's not as exciting because you don't know if you're going to ever lose your life. But you should be watching the ball. If you're on the bench, you shouldn't be whining and complaining that you're not playing. You should be watching the ball. I played uh, a little bit of uh, baseball in college. And our coach uh, would scream, watch the ball. And he said, I'm only going to say it once. And then I'm going to prove to you that you should watch the ball. And so there were often many times when we had our eyes turned. There might have been a good looking girl going by or just a bee in the, in the air, whatever it may be. When we weren't watching and he would throw the ball up and he would and crush it at us. Look, if parents ever knew, he probably would have been fired. He says, look, if you get hit by one of these balls, you will, you'll never forget the lesson. And by the way, he got a few of us. He got a few of us and we learned from it. The problem is when you share with other especially little kids, and you share, watch the ball. They think, oh, okay, just in general, I'm going to look out for the ball. I'll just keep a general eye out. It's not that big of a deal. In baseball and softball, it's the biggest deal out there. If you don't watch the ball, you're in big trouble. Paul's saying you need to watch out. You need to observe. And observe means more than just looking. The word in the Greek means this. means to fix your gaze on something. Or to take aim at something. See, it's more than just a simple view. The verb form of that noun is translated as goal. Back in verse 14, you can see it. Look back at verse 14. and We looked at it last week. What does he say? I press on towards the goal. That's the aim. The, the thing that we should be focused on. So the verb in, in verse 17 in our text, it's more than just observe. It's to pay, pay close attention. It means examination. It means inspection. Paul was using the same term when he wrote to the Romans in, in Romans 16, 17. He says, now, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. It wasn't that he just wanted to say, hey, just keep a casual eye out for those that want to hurt the church, that may bring in false doctrine. No, he wanted to make sure it was their aim. It was their goal to watch out for them because they're going to cause trouble. See, the aim and the goal for the Philippians is that they should be attracted to those who, as the text says, walk according to the pattern that you have in us. And what that means is that they should be attracted. And to have their attention be to those who are worthy of being imitated. He understands how ADD everybody is, right? He understands, look, your eyes can be drawn to many things in life. It could be, they could be drawn to other people. But the focus should be on that which is actually worth following. See, Paul, when he writes uh, to Timothy, he's writing some of the very last instructions that he's going to share. And he's sharing with how, how Timothy should act as a shepherd of the church. He's given some direction to the church as well. And then he lets him know we need godly examples. 1 Timothy 4.12, you know it quite well. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. It doesn't end there. Show yourself as a what? Example to those who believe. Why aren't young men and young women following godly examples? 
Why aren't the, those who are young in the faith looking to examples that will be worth imitating? It's because there's too few of them out there. It's because we need more of them. Our world is in desperate need of people who will break the mold of the world. Not being pushed into and conformed to the world, but those who are being transformed, we know how, by the renewing of their mind. Those who will point others to Christ, but so often mankind and humanity simply just wants to point them to themselves. But that's not the way that Christ wants us to live. That's not what Jesus modeled, was it? It's not how he modeled as an example to the believers, specifically to the disciples. And Peter, we know Peter, he was aware of this very thing. He understood how the people of God should act as he wrote in 1 Peter 5. He says, proving to be examples to the flock. This is 1 Peter 5, 3 and 4. Proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. Paul is telling them what every believer needs to hear. And that is that you need godly people in your life. Godly people who are actually worth imitating. Those who will point you to Christ. Young people. Teens. You need to pay attention to the people you hang out with. It's so important. You're at an age where decisions, life directions are being made. They're being set. Foundations are being set. And I know you can't, I know you can't see it now. You're too young to see it. You, you will understand it at some point. You need to understand what you need in your life. Do you want the world helping you with those decisions and pointing you in their direction? Or do you want some godly advice and godly counsel? Surround yourself with people, with friends who love you, who support you. Surround yourself with friends who actually know the Lord and want to know more of Him. Ladies, you need to surround yourself with other ladies who will encourage you, who will challenge you, who will point you to Christ. Wives, you need someone who will actually listen to you. We don't do a very good job of it. We kind of fall short. We, we, we try. We really do our best. Surround yourself with ladies who will listen to you who will comfort you, who will guide you. Gentlemen, you are not an island. You were never meant to be an island. You may feel like you don't need anyone and that you're, quote unquote, man enough to muscle through. Let me tell you, you're not. That's not the measure of a man anyway. The measure of a man is first, do you know Christ? Are you leading your family to know Christ? Are you leading other people to know Christ? And second, are you living a life that glorifies Him? And on that journey, that means this journey is not meant to be taken alone. Find other men to do this journey with. Other men that will lead you. Other men that will point you to Christ. How about this? Other men who will call you out when you need it. Because we all need it from time to time, don't we? And when you're down, other men will pick you up. One author says this, having a, an array of advanced Christians modeling genuine spirituality will produce a much more balanced, healthy Christian life. 
Those who have no example wiser and godlier than themselves will aim at nothing and hit very little. And those with only one personal example will likely eventually adopt not only that person's strengths, but also their weaknesses. We need godly examples in our lives. And you need to make sure you get this part. You also need to be the example for others. See, you can be the example. It doesn't always have to be someone else. Someone else will be the example of that little, that, that, that young boy, that young girl. Someone else will be the example for my neighbor. Someone else will be the example in my family. No, it needs to be you. It should be you. You're not perfect. I get it. But guess what? The Apostle Paul wasn't either. We've already established the fact that he, he was a train wreck at times. You don't have it all together. Neither, neither did Paul. Neither did any of the disciples or the, er, the, the early church fathers. But they gave so much. And what they did is they, they lived their life as an example that pointed to Christ. And one author points this about the early church fathers. They left their mark on the church through their undying devotion to him and their untiring efforts for his gospel. Let me ask you, how will you leave your mark on the church? In what way will you leave your mark on the church? Look, your mark won't be great if you're attracted to all the wrong things and to the wrong people. You need to be devoted to the truth. Be devoted to God's word. Be devoted to living a life that shares the gospel, but not only shares the gospel, but actually goes and lives it out. See, that's what believers should be attracted to. But just as important as what you are attracted to, and maybe even more so, there are things and people on this joyful journey that are to be avoided. There are people that are going to be in your life that probably should be avoided. Look, for every good example out there, there might be four or five or ten or twenty or thirty or a hundred more bad ones. Look at verse 18. He says, follow my example, follow other people's example. But in verse 18, he says, there are, there are many who walk of whom I have often told you, but now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul starts off this, this, this verse in, in verse 18 with the word for. You can just put in the word because. It's a term of explanation. He's going further to talk about what he just wrote about. So you need to be finding those examples that are worthy to follow because there are a lot of bad examples out there. How do we know that there are a lot? Just look around you. It's obvious. But we know that there's a lot because he tells us there's a lot. He says there, there are many that walk in this way. You've heard people talk about the narrow road and the, and, and the wide road. And the, and the wide road is wide. Why? Because there are many people going down. Just look at the people that you rub shoulders with every day. The people that you go to work with. Maybe the people that you interact in school with. The people on the athletic fields. Maybe even in the stands, parents. It could be your family, your extended family. There are many out there who live their lives, as Paul says, as enemies of the cross of Christ. Meaning this, that they oppose Christ and they are hostile in mind towards him. Meaning that they, they follow their own lust and their own passions that they, that they hope will bring them some sort of something, happiness or joy. All the while, they turn their back on the imposition that is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, look, I've told you this before. 
And I'm going to keep telling you these very things. Matthew Henry says, unfortunately, people are correct when he says, we so little heed the warnings given to us that we need to have them repeated. We needed things repeated in our lives, don't we? What Paul wants of his readers, he wants them to sit up. Pay attention. Take note and realize what you are to be doing, in what ways you are to be living, and the things that not only draw your attention, but that which should be avoided. And by the way, this all causes him to weep. If you look in the middle of verse 18, he says, I I, I weep. It's in the present. He's weeping as he's writing, even in the midst of such a, a joyful letter. And you know it. Even in the midst of your joy, there can often be pain. There can often be sorrow. But what is it that's making him weep? What's making Paul so sad here? It's when people, more specifically the church, does not live how they ought to live. When the church does not do the things they are meant to do. When there are so many bad examples in the world that it seemingly looks like they are outshining and choking out the good ones, the good examples. This causes Paul to weep. He's broken hearted by the false doctrine that that, that, that is going to spread. And they will mislead many people as it spreads. Doesn't it break your heart? When there are people that are carried away by every wind of doctrine that comes along. Oftentimes that's that shiny new penny that people are attracted to. But let me tell you, the shine wears off. Aren't fish also attracted to to really good-looking things, shiny objects that look so tasty and so good, and yet until the moment that they get hooked? That's the reason why the enemies of the cross of Christ are to be avoided looking at as an example in your life. They want no part of the good news of Jesus. Now look, who is he exactly talking about here? There's a couple of different options. It, it could be the Judaizers. The Judaizers were those who were, were adding to salvation, saying, yeah, okay, Jesus, you need Jesus, but you also need to bring in your own works, and, and, and you work your way to salvation, uh, and more and more and more, so you can earn your salvation. He could also be talking about the Gentiles. The Gentiles were the Gnostics of that day, that in fact, they take away from salvation in saying that, look, it doesn't matter what you do in your body once you you so-called come to know Christ. You're free, you're forgiven, live however you want to live. Either way, he's talking about those who are lost as it stands in regard to salvation. And they turn out to be enemies of the cross, and it grieves Paul. And don't you think... That it also grieves him because he understands that if they are not followers of Christ, they are followers of their own sin and their own passion. And that leads to what he calls, look at verse 19, look at what he says. These people, the enemies of the cross, whose end is their destruction. This is part of what grieves Paul. This is part of what should grieve every single believer in here this morning. That the enemies of the cross are those whose end will be in torments as they spend an eternity away from God Almighty. And what a sobering thought that is. One that shouldn't sit light on our minds, sit light on our consciences. But that's the end for all those who deny Christ, for those who have not put their trust in Him for their salvation from sin. 
For those, he says, look at how he puts it. He, he, he does some uh, interesting things with his word here. He says, their end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Their God is their appetite. That means that they're simply following the pleasures of their own palate. Whatever tastes good, that's what they do. That's what they're attracted to. And obviously it's more than, than just actual physical hunger. Hunger it points to the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. Whatever will bring them pleasure is what they seek after. It's what they pattern their life after. That's their aim. It's their goal as misguided as it may be. And not only is their God their appetite, but he says their glory is their shame. See, the reaction and the intentions of the unbeliever is completely different or should be completely different than a follower of Christ. When people cheat in life and they don't get caught, oftentimes that's celebrated rather than looked down on and shamed. It could be on anything. It could be on a test. It could be on taxes. It could be on a relationship. See, those are the things that doesn't matter if you're a believer or not. You should be ashamed of. Everyone should be ashamed of it. And yet the detractors of the gospel, they glory in such things. They take pride in that which should actually bring them shame. And when mankind does that, when they brag of that which repulses God, one author suggests this, that it's the most extreme form of wickedness. When the sinner's most wretched conduct before God is the highest point of self-exaltation. Perhaps, perhaps before Christ, you followed your appetites in many different ways. Perhaps you followed your appetite to alcohol and the high that that will bring. But now you realize, while having a drink isn't wrong by any means, the drunkenness is, and you're ashamed of that. It, that's those things that Paul said last week at the beginning of our chapter that he's left all that stuff behind. Remember how he counts it? He says he counts it as complete trash. He calls it rubbish. You used to glory in those things. Now you're, you're ashamed of them. But those who do not know Christ, they glory in those very things that they should have shame in. But there is no shame because they don't know the name of Christ. Their minds, that's what's next in the text, their minds are not on him, on God at all, as he says in verse 19. All they can see, all they know, is what's around them. They can physically see, and their mind is attracted to the things that are the shiny objects, the things that they think is going to bring them something, something about their lives. That's what they want. They want something to, to fill a need, to fill a void. And so they set their minds on it. They become deeply in love with the world and all that it has to offer, which seems quite appealing at times, as we all know. However, we know what Jesus said. For, uh, I'm sorry, uh, John, verse John 2.15, he says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James repeats the same sentiment in James 4.4. 4. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is actually hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Paul told us last week that our eyes, as we run this race, they, they need to be up. They need to be up. They need to be headed towards the goal, which is Christ. They need to be headed towards the prize, which is the eternity in heaven, where we will share in the family inheritance. You and I as believers, we don't have time to focus on the things of the world. We're on a journey. 
And the more enamored we get with the things of this world and the things that make promises that cannot be fulfilled, the more we open ourselves up to things that will make our journey that much more difficult. Are the things of the world enticing? Some of you are scared to shake your head. You bet they are. They absolutely are. Look, not every vice is appealing to every person, but if sin wasn't enticing and it wasn't appealing, it wouldn't be a problem. Sin has this. Sin has curb appeal. Right? It's really good. It's really appetizing. And you go after, and then you enter through the front door of that curb. And once you get past the front door, you realize what a pile of trash it is. And why would I want to spend my time there when I could be spending it doing that which I have been called to do. And even more, that which you have been saved to do as a believer. Your life as a believer. Get this. It's not your own. You've been bought with a price. You're now a follower of the king. You're a servant of the king. See, it's his desires that we should be attracted to. So as we continue through our journey in this life, we need to make sure we're attracted to the right things and the right people and make sure you avoid the wrong people. And look, let me clear this up. Okay, I'm not saying you have nothing to do with the world. Keep in mind the context of what he's saying. Don't take that out of context. Don't take my words out of context. We are to be in the world and not of the world. We're supposed to love those around us. We're supposed to bring the good news to them. We don't ignore them. We don't turn our backs on them. We pour into them. We may be the only Christ that they see. We need to love them. Point them to Christ. You're not perfect. It doesn't matter. Be faithful in who God has called you to be. Invest in those around you. You're there for a reason. I shared with the Iwana kids on Sunday that everybody is, or on Wednesday, that everybody is a missionary. God told, uh, Jesus told his disciples, go into all the world and to preach the gospel. That term go is as you are going. You don't have to go across the world to be a missionary. When you go to work, you're a missionary. When, when you sit down at Thanksgiving dinner, I don't know what your Thanksgiving dinner is going to be like, but it could be interesting, right? Maybe you have people around that table that don't know Christ. That's your mission field. We should see that. It should affect us. It should affect how we live. We can't turn our back on that. But you can't be looking at them for examples. You can't let them so close to you that they start pouring off on you and coming off on you. Surround yourself with good examples. Don't turn your back on the world. But make sure you're attracted to the right things. But look at this. The final thing that we see in verse 20 is what comes up next. There are things in our lives that we should be attracted to. There are things that we should be avoided. And there are things that should be anticipated. Look at verse 20. I love this. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So why is, why is it that we, we shouldn't get all worked up or entangled with all the things and the mess of the world? It's because it's not our home anyway. We're just passing through. Some of you maybe have lived in a small town or maybe you've uh, been taking a trip and you go through a small town and you're like, oh, be careful. If you blink, you're going to miss it. Guess what? When we get to heaven... This will be the blank. In the big scheme of eternity, 
This lie barely shows up on the radar, not because it's unimportant. Don't say that. This life is so important. This life is crucial. But it's a blip because of the amount of time spent here. Try comparing 90 years to an eternity. You can't do it. It doesn't compute. However, this is where we are right here, right now. And so on this joyful journey, we must remember, as Peter says in two, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, uh, that we are strangers and foreigners in this land. Two weeks ago, Paul said that he wants to know Christ and know him more and more and more. And the end of that section would be the resurrection of the dead. When that happens, we will be in our new home. The new home that we were meant for. The home where we will spend eternity with him. It's where our citizenship truly lies. And guess what? We anticipate that. Paul says in verse 20, we eagerly await it. There's an excitement, but there also must be a patience with that. Knowing that our timing, it's not going to be done in our timing. It's going to be done in the timing of our Lord and Savior who is sovereign but there's also a diligence that it takes to be patient. Because there will be times in your life, and maybe you're there now, where you're like, I am so done with people. I'm done with my job. I'm done with my marriage. I'm done with my kids. I'm done with my dog. I just want to be done with it all. Life is difficult. Paul had gotten there. Not in that sort of way, not in such a negative way. But remember, Paul was, Paul was conflicted, right? Which way do I go? Look back at verse, uh, chapter 1 real quick. Keep your finger where we are. We're going to be in chapter 1 for like two seconds. Look at verse 20, uh, 21 through 23 and 24. Uh, Paul, Paul experiences this back and forth. Verse 21, another very well-known verse. For to me, to live is Christ and die is gain. But if I am to live on the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I don't know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, or that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. You can turn back. Paul could go either way. He's, he's pulled, and not because life stunk, but because heaven's going to be so much better. He wants to see the Lord. He wants to be with them. And yet he realizes for the sake of the believers around him and for the sake of God's glory, it's better for him to remain. And so he's pulled in these different directions. And he would have known this, that Jesus said to his disciples, which would be very tempting. John 14, 2 through 3. You know this. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. So here's the deal. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Paul eagerly anticipated and waits for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to note the titles. Note the titles that he has here. This is in verse 20. He says, I eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've looked at Lord, we've looked at Savior, we looked at Christ, the new one here. Uh, I'm sorry, we looked at Lord, we looked at Jesus, we looked at Christ. The new one here, first time in the book, is Savior. Savior means the one who delivers from great dangers. And the great danger is sin and the penalty it brings and an eternity separated from God. Which is the consequence 
Paul had been saved from that. You as a believer have been saved from that. And so not only do we just await the rapture, not only do we simply anticipate the eternal bliss, but we anticipate the transformation that will occur. Our bodies, and you see that in the text, will be transformed from this earthly tent that we are now into a more permanent structure that we will see one day when we see him and we will be made like him. I love, as one author says, he said, the combination of a redeemed spirit and a glorified body will enable all believers to perfectly manifest the glory of God. Sin, weakness, sorrow, disappointment, pain, suffering, doubt, fear, temptation, hate, and failure will give way to perfect joy, pleasure, knowledge, comfort, and love. That's where our citizenship is. That's what we anticipate. And all of it is done by His power. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that God reigns? That His will is done regardless of what happens or how powerful mankind thinks they are? His will is accomplished here on earth and in heaven. And when we see Him face to face one day, we will be like Him. And the only way that is possible is not because we were good here on earth. The only way that that's possible is not because you were smart enough to figure it out. It won't be because you attended enough services or gave enough money. It will simply be because he has the power to save. And if we believe that God spoke the world into existence, and if we believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, and if we believe that he lived the sinless life, and that he came and he died and he defeated the grave, and, and he, he went into heaven and he's going to come back one day, then he indeed has the power to transform your body. And not just your lives, but your, your body, to change your body to be fit for an eternity in the kingdom of God. And I'll tell you, that's something to be anticipated, isn't it? And we all look forward to things in life, but that should be the one thing that we anticipate the most. We look forward to it. We're patient. It takes effort. And the reason it takes effort to be patient is because just look at the world around you. What do we see? We see war. We see greed. We see murder. We see lust. It's all around us. Our current events oftentimes will cloud our anticipation, but nothing can stop or change the plans of God, who is almighty, who is sovereign, and whose plan will come to pass. And you and I, as the church, we get the extreme honor and the privilege to be partakers of this plan. Partakers of the journey which will end when we see him face to face. But until then, until then, we continue. We press on, trying our best not to be distracted. There's a story of a Soviet leader. He used to tell of a time when there was a wave of petty theft in the Soviet Union. To curtail this, the authorities put up guards around all the factories. And at one timber works in Leningrad, the guard knew the workers in that factory very well. The first evening, out comes Peter Petrovic with a wheelbarrow, and on, one wheel, on the wheelbarrow, a great bulky sack with a suspicious-looking object inside. The guard says, all right, Petrovic, what have you got there? Oh, just sawdust and shavings. Come on, the guard said. I wasn't bored yesterday. Empty it out, tip it out. And he did. 
And out came nothing but sawdust and shavings. So he was allowed to put it all back in and, and to go home. And so the same thing happened night after night after night after night after night after night. And the guard became frustrated. Finally, the curiosity just overcame his frustration. He said, all right, Petrovic, I know you. Tell me what you're smuggling out of here, and I'll let you go. He says, wheelbarrows, my friend. Wheelbarrows. <laughs> Don't get distracted in life. It's too easy to become distracted. We get distracted when we take our eyes off the goal. We take our eyes off the prize. Don't get distracted in this race that we all run. Instead of letting all the distractions ruin your race, let the right attractions enhance it. As a runner in this joyful race, there are things in which you should be attracted to. Godly people, wonderful churches, Surround yourself with those things, but there are also things that should be avoided. Don't be looking at those terrible examples to follow. But all the while, while we're attracted to things and we're avoiding to certain things, we are anticipating the glorious ending of our lives in which we will be transformed. Get this, we will be transformed into his likeness. And that's what we've been chasing this entire time. It will happen. He will come again, and it will be a glorious day. We pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wonder of who you are. Lord, you are a good God. Lord, you've reached into time and space, and you've grabbed a hold of our lives as believers. You've turned our mind to the truth. Lord, and as believers, you've given us a journey. You've given us a race to be on. And Lord, there are things that should attract us. There's things that we should be attracted to. Lord, I pray that you put those things and those people in our lives that we would, would, would just go towards, be, be pulled towards. Lord, may we be that example for somebody else. Or we, people are always looking. We're always in need. Lord, help us to have our heads up, our eyes open, and pay attention to the fact that there are things to be avoided. But Lord, as we run this race, we anticipate your you're coming. What a glorious day that will be as we see you face to face. As this life will be a blink. Lord, as we see you for who you are, we see you on your throne high and lifted up as holy God Almighty. What a reason to run this race. Lord, I pray for strength for each one in this room. Or the race can be long and the race can be tiring. Help us have our eyes up. Lord, give us the strength day to day to run. And may you get the honor and the glory. And we ask you all of this in your son's name. Amen.